Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. In today's episode, I am pleased to welcome Scott Anthony, who for those who do not know him, he is a senior partner at InnoSight. He is a winner of the prestigious Thinker 50 Innovation Award and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review as well as MIT Sloan Management Review. Scott is also an award-winning author of many innovation books, including the book we will be discussing today, Eat, Sleep, Innovate. Scott, I'm super excited to have you with me today. Well, and I'm very thrilled to be with you today. Thank you very much for having me. Scott, I have a lot of questions for you today, but for a start, can you tell me a little bit about your innovation journey? How did it all start? Was it always you wanted to work in innovation or did you stumble on it? Uh, stumble on is exactly the right phrase. So, you know, if you look at, at the very quick version of my history, I graduated from undergraduates with a degree in economics. I then went to work at McKinsey and Company, great big consulting company. Did that for a couple of years, went to a startup company that was in the process of blowing through a billion dollars that it had raised and almost dying. And I then left that startup company as it was in the downslope and went to the Harvard Business School. And I didn't know when I joined the Harvard Business School what I wanted to do after graduation. I knew I didn't want to go back to McKinsey. It was a great place, just too big for me. But my second year, 20 years ago now, I took a class from Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. The class is now called Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. I was the first year that Christensen offered that class. And within about 15 minutes, I had fallen in love with Christensen and his research. And the rest, as they say, is history. I, I took the class. I did an independent research study with Clay in the spring term. After graduation, he had enough budget to hire a researcher. I did two years of research with him. We wrote a book together. He had founded Innosite along with my colleague, Mark Johnson, back in 2000. 2003, I joined Innosite, and 17 years later, here we are. So I know you had a really close relationship with the late Clayton Christensen that would most probably had a positive influence on your uh, career. But if I am to ask you to share with me one thing you've learned from him, what would that be? Yeah, we could spend the entire podcast talking about that. And it still saddens me, even though it's been almost 10 months since he passed, to, to think about him as the late Clayton Christensen. Uh, 67 is just too young for somebody with his capacity to leave this earth. But I, I learned so much from Clay. I, I learned most critically about how you really work and develop an idea. And, and certainly, I consider him many roles throughout my career. He was a professor. He was my boss. He was a co-author. He was a colleague. He was a mentor. He was a friend. But that idea of how do you really shape an idea? How do you get the rough contours of something that might help people think differently? How do you work on it? How do you refine it? How do you strengthen it? He had a brain, just a beautiful brain, that could see things so clearly, could shape them so tightly that I, I tried it and tried to do what he did. I, I could never do it as well as he did, but he, he taught me just a ton about how to work on ideas and, and much, much more. As you say, if we are to talk about what you've learned from Clay, it might take us the whole episode and more, but still thanks for sharing that learning uh, with me. So maybe let me jump straight into your newly published book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, uh, and ask you, why did you decide to write this book right now, given all the innovation books you've already written? 
Yeah, I remember the moment pretty clearly. It was about five years ago now. I was with my colleague Pontesir, and we were in Singapore, which is where I'm based. And we were running a, a discussion for the top leadership team of, of a big global shipping logistics company. And we were doing our, our normal thing. We we're talking about disruptive innovation, blah, 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 blah. The CEO was polite, but about 20 minutes into the discussion, he said, I know all this. I, I read all your books. We have a separate group that's working to deflect disruption and create new blah, 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 blah. He said, that's not my question. My question is, I've got 30,000 other people. What do I do with them? How do I get them to innovate on a more repeatable basis on a day-to-day -day basis? And we didn't have a good answer to that question. And I love that. I love when you ask questions that you don't have good answers to. So after that session, I, I collaborated with my colleague, Dave Duncan. He and I had written a book called Building a Growth Factory Together. And we said, could we actually put something together in 2015 on this topic? And we did. We, we put a rough draft together in a few months, but we weren't really ready to answer the question. So we kind of parked it on the side. Dave went and wrote Competing Against Luck with Clay Christensen. I went and did some other things. And then a couple of years after this episode, I got asked a question by Paul Cobbman, the Chief Data and Transformation Officer at DBS Bank. He said, can you purposefully shape a culture of innovation? And I said, I don't know, but we could work together to figure it out. And we collaborated together for a year-long project. And in the course of that project, we found kind of the missing piece that Dave and I couldn't find in the first version of the book. I then collaborated with Paul, Natalie Pinchot, Andy Parker, two of my colleagues, and Eat Sleep Innovate was born. So you've actually published the book to answer some of your clients' questions. What a better reason one can have. So your book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, is mainly focused on culture of innovation. But maybe before we zoom in, could you first define what does a culture of innovation really means, given there are so many ambiguous definitions out there? Oh, absolutely. And this is such a critical question that people will often skip. They'll get right into solutions without really framing up the problem. And of course, we know that a problem well-framed is more than half solved. So let me parse the definition. So we define a culture of innovation as one in which the behaviors that drive innovation success come naturally. So you then need to double click a little bit underneath that and you need to say, what is innovation? We define innovation very simply as something different that creates value. Something is vague, it's not just, not just technology, it can be many things. Different rather than breakthrough because it's fine to have an everyday sort of thing creates value as a reminder that innovation is different than invention or creativity. You've got to take that spark and translate it into revenues or profits or employee engagement or whatever. Innovation success, we say the behaviors that drive it have to come naturally. What we detail in the book are five specific behaviors. That's curiosity, customer obsession, collaboration, being adept in ambiguity, and being empowered. So you tie all those things together a culture of innovation is one in which those behaviors occur habitually. No one has to force you to do them. No one has to crack a whip to tell you to do them. You just do it on a day-to-day -day basis. And because of that, you naturally in your organization are repeatedly, reliably doing something different that creates value. I really like this definition as it emphasizes that innovation is about creating value and culture uh, is about doing things habitually and naturally. But then with that in mind, can you help us better understand the benefits of having an innovative culture inside a large organization? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. We talk about this in the right in the beginning of the book. And, you know, there has not been the big double blind study that says this company versus that company. We've isolated everything. We know exactly what the benefits of a culture of innovation is. 
but you can see lots of things that suggest it is a beneficial thing to do. I mean, you start with the basic thought experiment in a world that is changing as rapidly as it is now, even before the pandemic. You saw the pandemic in the mix too. And, and it's kind of self-evident that we need as organizations to be better at innovation. You then look at some of the, the data. There's data that supports each of the five behaviors. As an example, being adept in ambiguity, Google famously did a study a couple of years ago that found that teams that felt like they had psychological safety so that they could go and experiment significantly outperformed those that didn't. So you get piecemeal data for each of the behaviors. And then whenever somebody looks at innovative companies versus non-innovative companies, there is a very persistent three to 5% improvement in total shareholder returns that comes when you compare the innovative companies from the non-innovative companies. Now, of course, we don't know that that's correlation, not causation. We know it could run in the other way. So it's not definitive proof. But anytime someone looks at it, they say there are some real tangible benefits to having a culture of innovation. And then the final thing I do is I just imagine I've got four kids. I just do the thought experiment. Would I rather that my kids work in a place that has a culture where curiosity and collaboration and experimentation comes naturally or not? I most certainly would rather they work there, and I know they would too. So I, I think it's almost self-evident that this is a good thing, but there's a little bit of data that I gave you as well to help to bolster the view. But then on the flip side, why do you think leaders struggle to instill a culture of innovation when we know innovative companies are viewed favorably? Yeah, there, there was a quote from one of my, my clients years ago that I, I think summarizes the problem. This is a company that, that we were working with is more than a decade ago. It's well-renowned for actually being very good at innovation, but they were frustrated. They wanted to push even further. And I was talking to one of their top leaders about it. And the way he described the problem is he said, at this organization, we are organized to deliver consistent, reliable results. And that's exactly the problem. And that is the problem writ large. Organizations are wired to do what they are currently doing more effectively and more efficiently. Innovation is something different. It's as simple as that. Organizations have ingrained habits, routines, rituals, reinforced by structures and systems and metrics, all of which act as constraints that hold back the latent innovation capacity and capability inside their organizations. Again, I'll talk about my kids for a second. I don't have to teach my kids to be curious, to be creative, to be collaborative, to be experimental, to go and understand the external world. They do that naturally because they're kids. That's what kids do. But inside organizations, we lose that childlike wonder and it's reinforced by all the systems and structures inside. So the basic answer is the enemy lies fully within. It is institutionalized inertia that in some cases borders on an, a, an addiction to business as usual, which is not an easy problem to fix. That actually resonates well with me. Uh, in fact, in a prior episode, I spoke to a common friend, uh, Tendai Vicky, who mentioned companies struggle with innovation as they don't put in place the right incentives, the right matrices, uh, and indeed manage innovation using tools that are good for existing business models, when in fact innovation should be managed uh, differently. The question then, what are the things companies need to do to bring about the desired change that eventually allows them to become more innovative? Of course, the short answer is there is no short answer. I mean, it's the book, plus, plus, plus. I mean, because the book doesn't try to answer everything related to culture change because that's thousands of pages. It tries to zero in at a couple places. But in essence, 
you have to work uh, on three different levels. So you have to work level one at the day-to-day behaviors of your employees. You have to figure out ways to help them to individually break free from that institutionalized inertia. That's level one. Level two, you have to work on the systems and structures that surround them so that it's going to reinforce the individual behavior change that you're trying to drive. Level three, leaders need to think and act different. Is if the leaders are not truly walking the talk, it's never going to work. And on that third point, I, I, one of the things that I just am mindful of or reminded of when we think about this is an example of a leader who has really role modeled this, Scott Cook, the founder and still active chairman of Intuit, a U.S.-based software company, that from about 2008 to 2018 underwent a pretty broad cultural transformation as they really embraced design thinking and all the precepts behind it. I was talking to Scott about it as part of an InnoSight client event, and Scott said two things that really stuck with me. He said that the two things leaders have to do, number one, it's learning by doing by everyone. He says habits have to change and leaders have the biggest gulf because they have ingrained habits that really have been honed over 30 or 40 years in some cases. So they have to actively learn how to do different things. And then the second thing Scott said that I think was really profound is if you want leaders to then accelerate the culture change in their organization, they have to make sure that they regularly ask questions that insist and evoke the behaviors you're seeking. So for example, trying to drive design thinking, rapid prototyping and experimentation is a behavior you want. So a leader has to ask a question like, what experiment did you run this week? It's simple, but it's easy to forget and just go back to yesterday's questions, not tomorrow's questions. So just to summarize again, you gotta work at three levels and leaders, there are some simple things that they can do to reinforce those changes, but they have to do them consistently, they have to do them rigorously or the change is never going to stick. I fully agree with that. Leaders have to lead by example to ensure that change stick. But then can you tell us a little bit more about how can leaders actually bring the behavioral change? And importantly, how can they ensure that they stick and scale? Yeah, absolutely. And this is really the heart of the book. So, you know, we talk a little bit about leaders and like the Scott Cook story that I told you and Sachin Adela and Growth Mindset and all that. But it really is the the day-to-day behavior change that is the focus of the book. As we say, again, if you want a culture where the behaviors that drive innovation success come naturally, you, you have to focus on those behaviors. You have to fight inertia. And the basic answer that we have in the book is just rip a page right out of the habit change literature and say, if you're going to go change individual behavior, You have to engage both the rational, logical mind as well as the unconscious mind that's making quick decisions. And the specific tool we then suggest people use is this thing that we call a bean. A behavior enabler is the B and E. That goes after the rational, logical mind by giving people a checklist or tools or giving them a coach or whatever. The artifacts and nudges, the A and N, That goes after the unconscious mind by having reminders or having something like a leaderboard where you say, oh, I'm doing so much worse than my colleague. I've got to do better at this. That nudges you to go and follow new behaviors without you even thinking about it. So you have to think about how do we bring beans in to enable people to break the inertia to follow new behaviors. And then going back to my comment about the three different levels, you have to make sure that your systems and structures reinforce things. So you don't want to tell people, yes, go and run experiments and then punish them when they run experiments, which too many companies do. If those two things don't work together, you will never get change that sticks and scales. Then, of course, reinforced by leaders walking the talk as well. I really like the bean concept. Can you tell me a little bit more about it and maybe share a few of your favorite examples to help bring the concept to life? 
Yeah, absolutely. And this really was the thing that emerged out of the DBS collaboration that I talked about before, because DBS had done this. DBS didn't have the language for it. They didn't have the, the bean concept. But as Paul Coven was driving transformation at DBS, as we look back, we realized that what DBS had done is really plant a lot of smart beans to drive culture change. So let me just give you a quick version of the DBS story and then talk about a couple beans in their context. I think that'll bring it to life. So DBS, if you go back 10 years ago to when I moved to Singapore, it lagged in its local market. You look at DBS Bank today, it is widely recognized as one of the best, one of the most innovative banks in the world. And one of the big changes has been a cultural transformation from being a stodgy, slow-moving, highly regulated organization to a place that operates in the language of its CEO, Piyush Gupta, like a 28,000-person startup. To do that, DBS said there are five behaviors that we have to follow routinely. We have to be agile. We have to be a learning organization. We have to be customer obsessed. We have to be data driven. We have to be experimental. And then they begin to implement all these beans. Again, in the beginning, they didn't have the language for it, but that's what they did to help to encourage those behaviors. So a couple of my favorite ones from DBS. If you're going to be agile, you have to be highly collaborative. If you're going to be highly collaborative, you have to have very inclusive meetings where you're getting lots of different points of view. The meetings at DBS were not like this at all. They were poorly run. They went too late. People didn't participate and so on. So the way that DBS fought this is by introducing something called Mojo. Every meeting has it now. The Mo is a meeting owner responsible for the meeting starting and ending on time, making sure there are clear decisions. Everyone participates. The Joe is the joyful observer appointed by the Mo. They give visible feedback to the Mo at the end of the meeting. They're watching to see if everyone is participating. If they're not, they can call timeout and say, put your phones down. Let's make sure we're present during the meeting. This works. Before Mojo was introduced, 40% of people at DBS said meetings are collaborative. Today, that number is 90%. They're also a lot more efficient. DBS has saved a half million employee hours by following the Mojo approach. Another quick bean, a Gandalf scholarship. The thing that DBS is trying to encourage here is to be a learning organization. Why Gandalf? DBS doesn't want to compete against other banks. It wants to compete against Google and Apple and Netflix and Amazon and LinkedIn and Facebook. You put a D in between that, you get Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings. A Gandalf scholarship is something that if you want to learn anything, you'll get up to a thousand Singapore dollars to learn about whatever you want with the only requirement that you teach it back to the organization. The teach back to the organization is recorded. It goes into a central website, kind of like a TED talk, and anyone can watch it. It's a way to amplify and spread learning. So DBS has a bunch more things like this and a bunch more things that it has done. But those are a couple of the higher impact, most interesting beings that I think have helped it in its cultural transformation. The Gandalf scholarship example is a good one, as it shows that the company is invested in its employees, but also it helps spread the learning across the whole organization. Scott, I know you have more than 100 beans in your book, but if I am to ask you to share one or two other examples from outside financial services, which beans would you pick? So it depends on my mood, but you know, I, I think Amazon.com has a ton. I think two of my favorite from Amazon.com are the ritual of having an empty chair in every meeting to remind people that the most important person, the customer, isn't in the room. Amazon's memo from the future, another way to reinforce being customer-centric. When working on a new product, rather than having a dense, dry PowerPoint presentation, you write a future press release that has the customer and the benefits they'll receive very squarely in the press release. 
Then you've got a, a couple related to encouraging psychological safety and smart failure. Tata, the largest conglomerate in India, giving out a Dare to Try prize every year for people who tried to do something that didn't work out. Spotify having a fail wall where people can publicly write out the times where they have individually failed. As you mentioned in the book, there's 101 of them. So I guess I just did four plus two. I did six. We've got 95 more in the book. But those are a couple non-financial services ones. Spotify and Amazon's example, which encourage smart failure and reinforce customer centricity, resonate really uh, well. Just before we move away from this topic, can I ask if the Bean concept can be implemented by anyone? And are there anything that leaders need to keep in mind whilst implementing it? So I'll say a couple of things here. First, one of the things I really love about the Bean concept is you don't have to be, you know, Satya Nadella at Microsoft to go and plant a Bean. It can be done at the level of a team group department. Of course, at the entire enterprise as well. But it's not something that's just for CEOs. It's something that can be done at any level of an organization. That's point number one. Point number two, at the simplest level for a Bean to work it has to be connected into other things in the organization. The, the mistake that you don't want to make is say, we're going to create a beam to encourage people to do something that our performance appraisal system penalizes. I remember we were asked a, a few months ago, my colleague Pontesiran, who I mentioned before, to do a, a beanstorming session for a large telecommunications company based in Europe. And they said, we, we want beans to encourage innovation. We said, great, we can do that. So we go there and, and Pontus is running the session, trying to encourage beans. In the middle of it, someone says, with all due respect, the strategy that we have is to radically cut our costs. So I don't quite understand what we're talking about here to encourage these new innovative behaviors, because that's not what we're trying to do. That's not what our KPIs are asking us to do. So that's the number one thing you want to avoid. You want to make sure that you don't ask people to do something that you're not rewarding them for, or you're in some cases even punishing them for. And then I, I think the final thing I would say about this, you know, point number one, it can be done in any level. Point number two, make sure you don't ask people to do something that you're penalizing them for. Point number three, just get as specific as possible. The, the Bean concept works best if you say the very specific behavior we're trying to encourage is to have meetings that are more collaborative in the case of DBS. And then to be specific about what is the thing that you're doing instead of that? What is blocking that behavior? Instead, we have poorly organized meetings where we're all staring at our phones. The more specific you get about the behavior you're trying to encourage and the blocker that's standing in the way, the better the bean will be. Given what you've just said, I wonder if companies can derive a culture of innovation from anywhere within the organization. And also, do you think the support from the senior leadership is a must to make that change stick and scale? Yeah, I think absolutely. As I mentioned briefly before, this can be something that really starts anywhere. You know, chapter four of the book goes deeply into this example of something we did with Singtel, Asia's largest telecommunications company where the idea was to start in the HR community because you know HR touches every other piece uh, of Singtel. So if you really can get the HR community to embrace behaviors that drive innovation success, it can spread throughout the organization. So point number one, it really can start anywhere. I think the other thing that, that it is worth noting is ultimately, if you are to change the culture of an enterprise, 
you do need to have a CEO or some other C-level executive that is sponsoring, pushing, cheering for, participating in the work. It won't happen otherwise. You know, you're not going to have Microsoft change if Satya Nadella isn't driving the change. You're not going to have Intuit change if Scott Cook isn't driving the change. That's just, I think, a prerequisite. And then the, the third and final thing that I would say is if you think about what it really takes to have something that sticks and scales, you want to manage culture change like you would manage any kind of innovation project where you say, we've got assumptions, we're going to run experiments, we're going to accelerate the experiments that work, we're going to learn from the experiments that don't. And that's one of the things that I think DBS did really well. So DBS has a bean to manage its beans. It's called a culture radar. So what it does is it says there's five desired behaviors, you know, borrowing this from Agile. We're going to put a sticky note for each of the desired behaviors and start on the outside. That's a bean that we're testing among a team or a small group. If it works, we keep moving it closer to the center. It goes to a bigger and bigger group until something like Mojo right smack in the middle because everyone at the bank does it. If it doesn't work, we take the sticky note off and we find another one that we're going to put on. Just a very simple visual way to say, how are we doing encouraging those five behaviors that is part of our desired future state? Managing culture change just like one would manage any kind of innovation project makes a total sense to me. I guess this is probably one of the reasons many organizations are not good at it as they often treat culture change as a side thing. Scott, let me pivot our conversation a little bit in here. Given that your book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, was published during this pandemic, I wonder what do you respond to those who say now is not the time to think about innovation, but rather it's the time to focus on the present? And also, how can we turn this crisis into an opportunity? It's a great question. And of course, something that every organization is wrestling with today. Look, we have to be very clear. You don't have the right to own the future, imagine the future, design the future, create the future if you don't have control over the present. So, you know, we are far enough into the COVID-19 pandemic that if your organization still views it as a crisis, I'm not exactly sure what you've been doing over the course of the past seven months. It's a condition, no doubt. It's a bad condition and lots of things you have to worry about and all that. But you, you, you kind of know the animal that you're dealing with at this stage. And yes, things go up and things go down and all that. But you, you know the basic parameters you're playing with. You have to recognize that. You have to make sure that your employees are safe, your supply chain is functioning, blah, 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 blah. That said, I, I've got three responses to this isn't the time for us to think about innovation. Number one, as you think about how you respond to the realities of the current circumstance, you need a lot of innovation at, at a day-to-day level to go make sure that your employees are safe, that your supply chain is working, et cetera. I mean, I just one thing I noticed just walking around, I'm in the United States as we have this conversation. I, I live in Singapore. This is my first international trip in seven months. Just seeing the difference in different places, seeing all the micro innovations, restaurants figuring out creative ways to make sure they get food to places, blah, blah, blah. You need a lot of that. You need to make sure that you've got the day-to-day innovation to continue to drive performance in the face of a pandemic. The second thing that I think is important to note is if you study history, and I did this in a book I wrote in the middle of the global financial crisis called The Silver Lining, moments like this are moments where magic can happen, where if you're lagging in an industry, you can leapfrog over competitors, where you can go and innovate and create big space, where you can go and create the equivalent of your legacy. There is always opportunity, no matter how dark the time. And those that have the ability to think ahead, those who have the ability to innovate to get ahead, are extremely well positioned to create space between themselves and their competitors. And the final point that I would make is I think it's incumbent on all of us to say, 
How do we release, harness, and amplify the latent innovation capacity that we have in our organizations? Because we have an opportunity collectively now. And that opportunity is not to innovate to the new normal. That is very depressing. It's not to innovate to the new abnormal. That's even worse. It's to take all these cards that have been thrown up in the air, to take this great reset that we're going through and innovate to the new better. And I think that's what leaders really need to figure out how to do. Those are three great points that make the case for innovation for those who still questions the need to innovate during such times. Conscious of time, I'd like to move to another section, which I basically call a quick round, where I ask you a question that you would need to answer within a minute or so. So for a start, the first question I have is, what is one of your current favorite innovation books? I have many answers to this, but I, I think the one I'm going to pick is on our Culture of Innovation bookshelf, which is one of the appendices in the book. It's Creativity Incorporated. Ed Catmull is the lead author of that book. Ed Catmull, of course, is the co-founder of Pixar. And I think Ed Catmull just nails what it takes to really do creativity at scale. It's a very well-written book, and it has tons of practical advice that hopefully docks into the things that we talk about in Eat, Sleep, Innovate. So that's my choice. Creativity Incorporated is a book I really enjoyed reading. I do encourage everyone else listening uh, to this podcast to read it as well. So the other question I have, what is the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, this goes back to the conversation we had at the beginning about Clay Christensen. You know, when I was early in my time with Clay and, and I was working on the first book and I got the first draft of the book to Clay, he didn't like it very much. And in a polite way, he said the way that he always worked on ideas is he would just give 50 or 60 presentations. And then after that, he kind of knew what the idea was. And of course, you know, when I, w- I was 27, 28 years old, nobody was asking me to present anywhere. So it wasn't that useful at the time. But upon reflection, I realized he was absolutely right. The process of trying to talk through an idea to see how people respond to it is a really powerful way to figure out whether the idea resonates or not to improve it. I mean, it's basically the rapid prototyping and experimentation around ideas. So that that was a fantastic piece of advice I got from Clay in whatever it was, 2002, I think. That is a great advice. Everyone, in fact, now talks about that when you've received that advice since 2002. The final point do you have any last advice you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, the, the last piece of advice that, that I would leave with connects into some of the things we've talked about. It connects Pixar, it connects DBS. And the piece of advice is essentially to believe. You know, I think one of the challenges many leaders have, many organizations have, is they say, our fundamental problem is that our people are not up to the task. And I just reject that. I fully reject that view. I've got four children. They range in age from 14 to four. I look at those children and the belief I have now that's turned into a conviction is the world's greatest untapped source of energy is not in the wind, it's not in the water, it's not in the sun, it's inside our large established organizations that are filled with people that once were curious Charlies and hopeful Hollies and happy Harrys and thoughtful Teddies, those are my four kids. That innovation energy exists within your organization. My mission as a father is to make sure my children never lose it. My mission as an advisor is to help organizations capture, harness, and amplify it so we can all collectively innovate to the new better. So believe the potential is there. Believe the potential is there. With that positive message, I'd like to bring this episode to an end. Scott, thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Mohammed. Enjoyed it as well. 
Before I leave you, though, it's worth mentioning that I'm planning to release an episode every other week. So please subscribe so you don't miss any of the upcoming episode, but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. You can listen to this show and all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website. That is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.